Amen. If you would grab your Bibles as you grab your seat and open with me to Mark chapter 2. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. Mark 2, 13 through 17. So as we find our place in the Bible this morning, it might make it a little bit more difficult because I'm going to ask you to do something with me, kind of a thought experiment. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and to picture something, okay? So you have to trust that nobody behind you is going to jump on you or anything like that, but I, I think you can trust that, all right? So close your eyes and do your best in your imagination to picture an avid sports fan, an avid sports fan, okay? Now, probably, I would guess, I'm not in your brain, but I would guess that this person maybe is wearing a, a certain jersey, maybe a certain team that you like or don't like. I would imagine this person probably uses certain language. They talk in a certain way. They know the right terminology. Okay. All right, so here next, I want you to imagine in your mind someone who is uh, very artistic. I want you to imagine someone who's artistic. All right, once again, I would imagine if I had to guess that you're picturing someone who probably dresses a certain way, maybe instead of a, a sports jersey, now they're wearing like a cardigan or something like that, or maybe they've got paint smudges on their fingers, or they probably talk a certain way, right? They use a certain lingo about the, I don't know, the music they write or the art that they create. All right, one more. Now I want you to imagine in your mind someone who is a Christian, all right, to be fair, I set you up for failure with this experiment, okay? This was a trap. But did you imagine someone that looked a specific way? Did you imagine someone that dresses a certain way or uses a certain lingo? Did you imagine, I mean, maybe, maybe for the older generation, you specifically imagine someone who doesn't have tattoos. But for my generation, you might have imagined someone who has certain tattoos, Right? Uh, they've got an anchor or a cross or Hebrew or Greek or a fish or something like that, right? Well, this is very human of us to have in our minds a certain picture of how a Christian should look, how they should talk. But as we're going to turn to our passage this morning, this is something that we need to fight against. Now, what I'm not saying is that the Bible has nothing to tell us about how we should dress. The Bible has nothing to tell us about the kinds of words we should use. The Bible definitely speaks to those issues. But if we have in our mind a very limited picture of who a Christian is, how they look, specifically do they look like us, then this means that we need to let the Word of God challenge us this morning. Because this is the very issue that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were wrestling with in the text that we're going to study. Maybe it would have been just as helpful, instead of to picture a Christian, maybe it would have been just as helpful this morning if I had you close your eyes and picture a sinner. Now that's the word that's going to be used a lot in the passage that we're going to study. Is the Pharisees looked around themselves and they saw a certain kind of person and they labeled that person as a sinner according to how they lived their lives or how they looked, these external measures. And the Word of God is going to challenge us this morning that this is not how God views people and this is not how God defines people. 
So let's look at our text. You'll need to know up to this point, even though we're still early in Jesus's ministry, is he's been making some waves. I mean, he's been preaching with authority, which is one thing in itself. He was performing a lot of miracles, healing people, casting out demons. And the religious leaders of the day were good with Jesus when that's what he was doing, focusing on what's healing people. But then he started saying audacious things like, he has the authority to forgive sin. That's something that only God can do. And so now waves are being made. Some feathers are being ruffled. And what we're going to see in this text, in the next several texts that we study from Mark, is that the religious leaders of the day were really struggling with reconciling who Jesus was describing himself as and how that could possibly work with their view of God's word. And so in our text this morning, he's He's just going to be making even more waves. For lack of a better word, he's going to be actually making some enemies as he presents the truth about who he is. And so let's look at verses 13 and 14 to begin with. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So what we see here is that Jesus is, in order to teach people, he has to go out to big open spaces because that's how large the crowds are that gather to him. In our last last text, we saw that, you know, it's too many people to fit in a house. It causes issues. You end up with holes in your roof whenever you try to do that. And so he's learned his lesson. He goes out into big open spaces so that he can teach people. Verse 14, and as he passed by, meaning on his way from Capernaum, which is his home base for ministry, out to this big open space by the Sea of Galilee, he passed by, what do we see here? Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So this is going to be the primary issue that the religious leaders of the day have with Jesus, is that he would look at a tax collector and he would call to that tax collector, come and follow me. Now you'll remember from when we studied about the fishermen that this phrase, follow me, was the official invitation that a a rabbi would extend to a disciple, saying, if you accept this invitation, you're now formally, officially my disciple. And we saw that the issue with that with the fishermen was that they were not um, uh, qualified to be a disciple. They had not made it far enough along in the educational process in order to follow a rabbi. And yet Jesus called to these unqualified men. Now that was shocking enough, but what Jesus does here with the tax collector is even more astounding. In most cultures, tax collectors are not the most popular person in the room. People don't like to pay taxes. I mean, that's pretty simple, right? Well, in Jesus' day, under the Roman Empire, and especially in uh, Israel at this time, this issue is especially uh, difficult. And it's because of how the Roman government did their tax system. What they would do is they would have different people bid to be the tax collector. In other words, they would say, I think I can collect this much tax money. And somebody else would say, I can collect this much tax money. And the Roman government would choose, okay, well, you said you can get more money, so we choose you. And then the person who got the bid actually had to pay that amount of money ahead of time to the Roman government. You're going, okay, what this tells me is a couple of things. First of all, those who were tax collectors had to be already wealthy before they became tax collectors. 
And then secondly, as we think about it, how in the world is the tax collector supposed to make money if he's paying the tax ahead of time? What's he going to do? He's going to squeeze every cent he can out of every person that he comes across. He has essentially used the wealth that he already had in order to purchase the authority he needs from the Roman government to then abuse common people in order to become more wealthy than he already was. That's pretty messed up, right? That's not a good system. So it's understanding, understandable that the Jewish people did not think highly of tax collectors. In fact, they called them traitors. These were people who were willing to turn their back on their own people in order to partner with this oppressive government in order to abuse common people so that the rich could get richer while the poor get poorer. Pretty despicable. And they viewed tax collectors in this way. They would not let a tax collector um, be a witness in a court case. Why would we trust your words? You're a tax collector. They would not let a tax collector enter into the synagogue for worship. They would not let a tax collector enter into the temple for worship. They were completely a disgrace. I mean, they considered them uh, on equal level with a murderer or a thief. That this person, essentially, a tax collector, has chosen to throw away all of their relationships in order to become wealthier than they already were. They forsook their their relationships with their family, turned away from their family. They turned away from their relationship with their community, their people. They even threw away their relationship with God so that they could get richer. They said, I don't care that I can't go to worship anymore because I can make more money. And so, as we think about Jesus calling a tax collector to come and follow him, is with the fishermen, they were unqualified. But according to what people of the day would have thought as a tax collector, it's not just unqualified, he's disqualified. He has thrown away his relationship with God. And as we think about this, we should... In our own hearts, if we're being honest, be incredibly grateful. These are the kind of people that Jesus calls to himself. Those who are unqualified and those who are disqualified. Because that's who we are. But this challenge is to think of ourselves in that way. And that's what we're going to see that the Pharisees are wrestling with in the rest of the text. But before we get there, what we need to grasp from these first two verses is this. That Jesus offers life-altering forgiveness. Jesus offers life-altering forgiveness. Now, why would we describe what Jesus has offered to Levi? Elsewhere in the Bible, he's called Matthew, Matthew, Levi. Uh, Why would we describe what Jesus is offering to Levi as life-altering? Well, it was the same thought that we had when we saw Jesus call the fishermen to himself. Hey, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Okay, yeah, Jesus, we're going to follow you. He comes and he calls to this tax collector, come and follow me. Now, of course, what did that mean that Levi had to do? Get out of the tax booth, right? He had to walk away from his chosen lifestyle of sin in order to follow Jesus. That there was no way for him to follow Jesus and to continue in that sin. It didn't work. 
And so for in order for Levi to receive Jesus' forgiveness, necessarily his life was altered. It was changed. And we know that this wasn't just a one-time small change. We knew that Levi as a whole had to be a different person in order for him to walk side by side with these other disciples as they followed Jesus. Why would we know that? Let's think about who these disciples are, right? Four of them at least were fishermen, good old boy, blue-collar workers. How do you think they thought of tax collectors? And in fact, Peter's home is in Capernaum meaning they're from the same area as Levi, almost certainly Levi has used his purchased authority to abuse these men. Almost certainly at some point they've had an interaction where Levi, as the tax collector, has taken money that he did not deserve to take from these men. And if not them, at least people they knew and the people they worked with and the people they loved. So how would they view Levi? What would they think about him? Well, we don't, maybe it took some time. Maybe there was a little bit of tension here at the beginning. But we know that they were able to walk together as they followed Jesus. Who else was following Jesus? We know of one disciple named Simon the Zealot. What does it mean to be a zealot? We use that term, oh, I'm, I'm zealous over this, meaning I'm very passionate about it. But in Jesus' day, the term zealot referred to a political party. It was a group of people who specifically wanted to raise up an army, a rebellious army, to overthrow the Roman Empire. That's what the zealots were known for, is rebels against the Roman Empire. And in fact, it was the zealots in around 70 AD who rebelled against Rome, and then Rome came through and wiped out Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and it's never been rebuilt since then. And so, Simon the Zealot was formerly known as one who wanted to raise up arms against the Roman Empire. How do you think he would have thought of this tax collector who has partnered with the Roman Empire in order to abuse common people to make himself more wealthy? And yet somehow, these two men are able to walk arm in arm as they follow Jesus. How is that possible? It's because the kind of forgiveness that Jesus offers to us changes who we are. It is life-altering forgiveness. That from this point on, Levi was not known as Levi the tax collector. He was known as Levi the disciple of Jesus. And from this point on, Simon was not known as Simon the zealot. He was known as Simon the disciple of Jesus. The forgiveness that Jesus gave to them transformed who they were from the core. And this is true for anyone who follows Jesus. I'm thankful this is true for me. That I'm not known as Shan, the sometimes angry father. I'm known as Shan, the disciple of Jesus. That's how God views me. That's how God defines me. I'm not known as Shan, the guy who sometimes wrestles with anxiety over money. I'm known as Shan, the disciple of Jesus. Because The forgiveness that Jesus offered to me altered my life. 
transformed who I am. Now, that doesn't mean I don't still wrestle with those sins, wrestle with that temptation, but it means that's not how God sees me anymore. And that's not the direction and the focus of my life. And it means that in order for me to follow Jesus, I have to actively walk away from those sins because Jesus has offered me a forgiveness that alters my life. And this can be true for you this morning too. Whoever you are, it doesn't matter what your sin is, it doesn't matter how bad you think it is, it doesn't, doesn't matter. All are welcome at the feet of Jesus. That no matter how wicked your sin is, God's grace is greater. That there is no sin that is beyond God's forgiveness. For the people of the day, they would have looked at the tax collector as the most despicable of all people. And yet Jesus called to him, come and follow me. So whoever you are, whatever you wrestle with, Jesus offers to you forgiveness. Not just forgiveness of a sin, but freedom from that sin. A redefinition of who you are. That you can no longer be Bob the thief. Sorry if there's a Bob here. I'm not actually calling you a thief. But, but your sin does not define who you are. Your relationship to Jesus defines who you are. You can be his disciple. Because all are welcome at the feet of Jesus. And so this offer of light all life off this offer of life altering forgiveness how will it be received will this cause more waves for Jesus's ministry well let's keep reading verses 15 through 17 now and as he reclined at table in his house many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him so it's a little bit unclear in the Gospel of Mark, but Luke retells this story for us and makes it clear that this is Jesus reclining, attending a feast at Levi's house. That essentially Levi has offered this feast to celebrate who Jesus is, to introduce his friends to Jesus so that they can receive the same kind of forgiveness. And who would we expect to be eating with tax collectors here it's just described as sinners. Now, if tax collectors are considered the worst of the worst, who's going to come and hang out and party with those tax collectors? Other people that the culture completely defines them by their sin. In their minds, the worst of the worst. And this is who Jesus is spending time with. This is who Jesus is ministering to. To the extent that it describes that there are many who followed him as these kinds of people. People that the culture defined as sinners. And the religious leaders of the day, they can't wrap their brains around this. What in the world is Jesus doing? They, they ask his disciples about this, verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, and these, these would be men who were religious leaders. They knew the Old Testament forwards and backwards. They were passionate about following God's law. And they can't understand what Jesus is doing. When they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
Now, the reason that the, the Pharisees can't wrap their brains around what Jesus is doing is because the Pharisees viewed themselves, for lack of a better word, as fence builders. That they were so passionate about not breaking God's laws, God's commands, that they added additional rules to God's laws so that they would build this protective barrier around so they wouldn't accidentally sin. I mean, an example would be, well, you're, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And so they go, okay, I don't want, I want to be careful. I don't want to accidentally work on the Sabbath. So what's an example of working would be uh, carrying a load. Um, so how do we make sure we don't carry a load? We're going to add all these extra rules. You're not even allowed to uh, put anything in your pockets on the Sabbath day. And that's how I'm going to protect against accidentally breaking the rules. This is how passionate about these men are about not breaking God's commandments. So of course, they can't wrap their brains around being so close to people who live lives in total disregard to God's word. Why in the world would you associate with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus has an answer for their question. Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Jesus, in answer to their question, provides a metaphor for us. And he talks about people who need to see a doctor and people who don't need to see a doctor. It's pretty simple, pretty clear. If you're sick, if you're unwell, you need to see the doctor. If you don't need to, if you're not sick, you don't need to see the doctor. That's pretty simple, right? Well, he says, similarly, the comparison is this. I came for those who are spiritually sick. I came for sinners. I did not come for the righteous. That that's the whole purpose of my ministry. In the same way that it'd be foolish for a doctor to turn away a sick person, it doesn't make any sense for Jesus to turn away a sinner. That's the whole purpose of his ministry. But this necessarily forces us to ask and answer the question, well, who are the sinners and who are the righteous? Because you could read this and wrongly understand what Jesus is saying. You could think he's saying there are those who need Dr. Jesus, the sinners, and there are those who are spiritually well, the righteous. They don't need Dr. Jesus. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Instead, he knew that the Pharisees knew the Old Testament forwards and backwards. And as soon as he talked about the righteous and the sinners, he knew that verses would be popping up into their minds. Verses like Isaiah 64, 6, that our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. Or Isaiah 53, 6, that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned aside everyone to our own way. Meaning, the Pharisees knew good and well that the righteous is not a real category. At least amongst humans, right? None of us are righteous. No, not one. Meaning, who was in need of seeing Dr. Jesus? Who is spiritually sick? All of us. All of us are sinners. That the Pharisees thought they didn't need Jesus because they had built this fence around the wall. And Jesus was saying, you don't need a fence, you need a physician. And that you have convinced yourself that you are good spiritually well because you are comparing yourself to other men. 
And this comparison, using this comparison, you have deceived yourself. You are not spiritually well. You are just as much in need of me and my life-altering forgiveness as anybody else. And so this was a very difficult message for the religious leaders to understand, to accept. And when Jesus proclaimed it, it would have shook their culture. The fact that he was eating and, and associating with these tax collectors, it was unbelievable. And so what we see is that Jesus offers not only life-altering forgiveness, but Jesus offers culture-shaking forgiveness. Jesus offers culture-shaking forgiveness. That because of what he's doing and what he's teaching, their world cannot look the same. They cannot continue to operate and, and do their religion in the same way because what Jesus is teaching and demonstrating is in contradiction to what they believe and what they practice. That there are those, because of what they do, that are righteous. And there are those, because of what they do, that are unrighteous sinners. And Jesus is saying that culture needs to be shaken, needs to be torn down, and you need to rebuild your understanding of what it means to be close to God. And so in a nutshell, here ultimately is the culture that needs to be shaken. Jesus said, or here's the wrong idea that Jesus is trying to shake out of our minds, out of our culture, is this. I'm the kind of person that God wants to be with. And that's the kind of person that God doesn't want to be with. That's ultimately what the Pharisees were believing. Because of something they did, God loved them and wanted to be with them. And because of something that the sinners did, God did not love them and did not want to be with them. And if that belief is in our culture, then our culture needs to be shaken to its core just as much as the Pharisees. Because the issue, the, the, the reason that that concept doesn't work is it's based on very bad reasoning. And it's based on our inability to accurately assess our own sin and how serious it is. It's based on this idea that because I'm not as bad as that person, I deserve God's love more. And this is a lie from Satan. And it is in direct contradiction to God's gospel of grace. Grace. What is the definition of grace? It is a good thing that you cannot earn. Unmerited favor is the fancy way to say it, right? It's a gift that you could never earn. And God offers to us forgiveness, not because we worked for it and got it, but because it's grace. He wants to give it to us. And so whenever we start to compare ourselves to other people and, and think, this is why I deserve God's forgiveness, this is why I deserve God's grace, it is in direct contradiction to the gospel and it's also not very honest with ourselves. I was reading an article written by a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania where he had examined multiple studies, these psychology studies, and then he was kind of summarizing the different findings. All of these were peer-reviewed scientific studies, okay? And all of them had this one major theme is that we, in general, are bad at self-awareness. 
especially we're bad at evaluating our own positive traits, meaning that we like to think that we're better than we are. And so this was not a Christian study. This was not this was completely from a secular perspective, but they found these kind of findings, that if you asked a person to predict how well they were going to do on an IQ test or a creativity test, and then you asked their friends to predict how well that person was going to do on the IQ test or the creativity test, the friend was much better at predicting how well the person was going to do than they were meaning your friends know more accurately how smart you are than you do. Similarly, they asked a person to predict how well they were going to do on job performance, and then they asked coworkers to predict how well that person was going to do on job performance, and guess what? The coworkers were much better at predicting how good you are at your job than you are. They even did the same kind of study with total strangers. You've only known this person for eight minutes, and I want you to predict how, well, how good you are at uh, leading in a group setting. And then this person has only known them for eight minutes. How well is that person going to do in leading in a group setting? And the stranger was better at predicting how well they were going to do than the person themselves. What's going on here is... Apparently, universally, we like to think more highly of ourselves than what is actually true or accurate. That we like to give ourselves more credit than we deserve. And we see this truth reflected not just in these scientific studies, but in the Word of God. That we fall into this trap where we like to compare ourselves to other people in order to make us think that we're better than we are. Well, you know, as long as I'm not as bad as so-and-so, then I'm doing pretty good. That's what the Pharisees thought. Because I'm not like those sinners, God loves me. Well, what's the problem with this rationale? There's always somebody worse, right? I mean, it doesn't matter how bad this person... I'm pointing at, you know, Joe over here because Joe's worse than me. And then Joe can just point to Sam and Sam can point to Frank and Frank can point to Bob. And eventually we go, well, at least I'm not as bad as Jeffrey Dahmer, right? And then and Jeffrey Dahmer's like, well, I'm not as bad as Hitler, right? And, and Hitler's like, well, I didn't kill as many people as Stalin, you know? Like, and it just goes on and on. And under this rationale, there's really only one person who's the worst person ever, Right? That's the only person who's truly wicked. That's the only person that God truly has any kind of punishment for their sin. But this is nonsense. God does not grade grade righteousness on a curve. The standard is not other people's righteousness or holiness. The standard is God's perfect righteousness and holiness. And based on this standard... All of us have equally failed. All of us are equally spiritually sick. And all of us are equally in need of the great physician, Jesus, to offer to us this life-altering, culture-shaking forgiveness. And so as we think about it, the Pharisees were actually right in their judgment of sinners. It was astounding that Jesus wanted to be with them. They were right about that. What they got wrong was their 
perception of their own sin. Because it is astounding that Jesus wants to be with any of us. And when we lose sight of that, it's when we lose sight of the mission. It's when we hold back God's grace and we keep it for ourselves. But can you be humble enough to put aside this self-bias? That's the fancy scientific term that we think back to those studies. All those people, the reason they thought more highly of themselves than they should is because they had bias. They had a buy-in. They wanted to be better than they were. But can you put aside that self-bias? Can you see your own sin, not in comparison to other people, but in comparison to God? Because when we see our sin accurately, it's then that we would not dare to hold back God's grace from anybody. It's then that we would not imagine that a Christian looks this way. It's then we would see anybody as the right recipient of the gospel rather than the people who look like us and the people that we're comfortable with or the people that we think fall into a certain category. Because those categories that the Pharisees presented, well, there's the the tax collectors and the sinners over there, and then there's us over here. Those are man-made categories. They are not God's categories. God's categories are these two categories, those who follow Jesus and those who don't. That's it. And the only way that we can shake up our wrong culture and see things the way God wants us to see it is if we are honest about just how serious our own personal sin is. Stop trying to find someone that we think is worse than we are. Let the Holy Spirit speak into our hearts and convict us and show us that we all need Dr. Jesus. And so one more time, I want to ask you to close your eyes and to picture something. Picture this church, every single seat, full of people. Do those people look like you? If they do, then we have to fight that vision. Because God's vision is much bigger than that. It's not a vision that is based off of human categories, of who is in and who is out. It's a vision that is based off of His glory, the worship that He deserves. And He deserves the worship and the honor, and the praise, and the glory from all people. All kinds of people. No matter what they look like or how they talk. God deserves their honor. He deserves their glory. And so we have to let Jesus shake this wrong culture. That the church looks like me. Instead, let God's vision define what the church should look like. As we're concluding, I want to ask you one final question. Can you admit your need for Dr. Jesus? 
it's tough. I'll be the first one to tell you I don't like going to the doctor. I don't, I'll be pretty much have to be on my deathbed before I'm willing to go. I'm like, no, I'll be good. I'll just walk it off. Don't worry. We're not, I'm not going. I, one time I put my finger in a router and, and I was like, no, we'll just put some new skin on it. Don't worry about it. it after it bleeding for 45 minutes, I was like, okay, fine. I'll go to the doctor. So I get it. Most people don't like to go to the doctor because they don't like to admit that they messed up or that they need help. That's the only way you can go to Dr. Jesus. That's the only way that he can treat your spiritual sickness, is if you can have the humility to admit your need for him, that you are not well, that you are not righteous. It doesn't matter what you've done. And that the only way you can be made well, the only way that you can be righteous, is if you begin to follow Jesus with your life. By turning away from your sin. By walking away from the tax booth. And walking after Jesus. Then, He gives you a forgiveness that alters your whole life. He gives you a forgiveness that shakes the culture of this church. Can you admit your need for Him? If you can, recognize what he is offering to you. If you would place your faith in him, believe in him as your Lord, and follow him with your life, you have become not a sinner. You've become the righteous ones because his righteousness has been given to you. We're going to have a time of response, and what that means is it's time to move as the Holy Spirit is guiding you and leading you. In church, I think that that means we need to get on our knees, and let God's vision of the church shake up our culture and redefine our vision for the church. For those of us in this room who have never made the decision to follow Jesus, maybe now is the moment when you're realizing that you are not spiritually well and that you need to come to the great physician. I'll be here in the front. If you want to speak with me, I can show you from God's word how your eternity can change today. Father, we're so thankful for your perfect and holy word. We're so thankful for how it both challenges us and encourages us. We ask, Lord, that you would use this word to shake our culture. They would use your vision for the church to define our vision for the church. We also ask, Father, that in this time that you would give courage to those who feel the guidance of the Holy Spirit in this moment. Give them courage to be obedient. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.